reminder of who we are, this is the Community Voices series of the Institute for Policy and Governance. I'm Max Stevenson and I'm the director. I'm a professor here in the School of Public International Affairs. And we're delighted today and this evening, um, this evening will be the more formal program, to have two guests who have been working in uh, the Turkish press and Turkish uh, politics um, through the press for a while. Um, and we're interested in their comments on trends in journalism, trends in the press in Turkey. Uh, I will ruin your name, so I apologize. Uh, I've, I've been trying to learn their names. So Mahir Zainalaf is a weekly columnist for Al Arabiya and a blogger at Huffington Post. He's based in Washington. Uh, he's worked a number of places, began his professional career with the Los Angeles Times. He's worked with uh, David Hawley, who was based in Moscow. Uh, he later joined today's Zaman as foreign affairs correspondent and acting web editor. He is a frequent commentator on developments in Turkey and for the world's major radio and television channels, including CNN, Monaco, BBC, and Sky News. Uh, he's twice been recognized among 100 people to follow on foreign policy by the Foreign Policy Magazine, so we're delighted to have you. Um, Hamid Bilici, good to have you, Hamid, um, is a former Turkish newspaper executive and the former editor-in-chief of the newspaper Zaman. He was also the chief executive officer of its English language version, today's Zaman, before the recent government takeover. He was general director of Sihan News Agency and editor of Axion Weekly Magazine. Writing mainly on the topic of the foreign policy of Turkey and world politics, he frequently shares his views at various local and international television programs. He's a member of the Turkish Journalists Association, Journalists and Writers Foundation, and World Association of Newspapers. So what we're going to do um, at this time is simply allow them to offer, as we usually do, framing comments of questions that they would like to be thinking with us about today during their visit and this evening, of course, in their more formal remarks. And then we'll open it up for questions from you all, as we always do. So thank you for coming. And let's begin. And you split your time however you wish. Well, thank you very much for inviting. I think it's important um, that uh, we're here uh, trying to share with you the, the stories that we really believe are underreported, especially in, in Western media with, in the light of recent events in the United States, um, since it's uh, fully occupied by um, a, a lot of uh, agenda items. Um, I, I think it's important to take a step back and, and look what's going on in Turkey, and perhaps if there, are, uh, if there might be some lessons to be learned uh, for the United States in upcoming months and years. Um, the, the country that we're coming from um, is not Iran or Russia. I mean, this has been a country that was semi-democracy a decade ago, and, and this country has turned into a, a state where at least one journalist is being put behind bars um, uh, on average every day. Uh, my colleague here is wanted for arrest in Turkey. Uh, uh, I'm facing six years in prison in Turkey, um, and, and the only crime that we committed is to speak truth to the power, is to make sure that the wide um, segments of society know what's going on, how the corrupt the governments are, as they are in many parts of the world, but, but democracy is being measured how they retaliate against when the journalists take the liberty to speak out and, and highlight the, the wrongdoings committed by the government. So I think it's important that we um, underscore um, the developments in Turkey because 
the scale of the purge and the crackdown is so staggering that that's, it's something, something that's unseen in, in recent decades in, in modern times. We're talking about tens of thousands of people were put uh, behind bars on ludicrous charges, such as downloading a smartphone app or subscribing to our newspaper. And, and they include members of the judiciary, police officers, members of the military, uh, uh, teachers, doctors, even soccer referees, uh, baklava sellers, any type of person that, um, that, that are deemed uh, non-loyalists are, are, are put in prison. And uh, I have, only from our, our newsroom, we have like 52 uh, journalists. Uh, these are the colleagues that we work together are now um, sitting in prisons across Turkey. And, and I have seen their indictment. Uh, the court accepted them, I think, like two months ago. And most of them, most of the uh, accusations are, are mostly uh, centered on the retweets um, and, and their tweets and their posts on Facebook um, and, and the prosecutor framed them as a crime because somehow they um, targeted the government, somehow they criticized authorities and especially if you touch um, a very thin-skinned uh, president, Erdogan, uh, there's no way that you can get away with that. And, um, and I think the more tragic part is how this, uh, the crackdown is unfolding in Turkey with a complete impunity and the Turkish society mostly silent, uh, mostly because um, you know, they fear that their uh, family members could be targeted or their relatives could be targeted. But also I cannot imagine that anyone in, in the country, a lawyer, academic, or a journalist, a columnist, would challenge the official narrative uh, imposed by the government and get away with that. They will either lose their job or they will lose their freedom. So there's no way that these people can speak, speak, speak up. Turkish people are brave people and they have always been. But what's going on in Turkey uh, requires more than bravery. It requires that, that you really have to stand up and speak up at the expense of your freedom, at the expense of the freedom of your family members. We have a, a common friend <clears throat> who, uh, whose wife is sitting in jail for eight months, who is a housewife, by the way, and he's a journalist, and, uh, and the accusation against her is to subscribe to a, a weekly news magazine that her husband was editing for many, many years because the news magazine was a critical one. It was framed as terrorist. Just only, I think it was yesterday or, or the day before, yes, it was yesterday, President Erdogan said that, you know, Europeans uh, presented me a list of jail journalists and they just looked at the list. There, there were like 149 journalists in jail. Uh, except four of them, most of them are, uh, most of them committed terrorism, and four of them are, um, you know, child molesters and thieves. This is how he views uh, journalists sitting behind bars. And the problem is, he has a, a tremendous popularity in the country, and I think that's one of the misconceptions in the West that you know, Erdogan is uh, marginalized, He's, he doesn't have a popularity in the country. That's absolutely not true. He's enjoying more than 50% of popularity according to, according to recent surveys. And that's the crux of the problem because the source of his legitimacy is that we're outnumbered, is that we are more than uh, anyone. And the rule of law has replaced um, the rule of uh, people, uh, I'm sorry, the rule of people replaced rule of law in, in the country. There are thousands of cases launched since the uh, military coup attempt, but, but, but there's no way to uphold free trial. There's no way 
that, that you can apply the, the, the protections and freedoms and civil liberties that's enshrined in our constitution because of the state of emergency. We suspended the European Convention of, of Human Rights. So there's no way if you are, um, um, if you are jailed um, or if you are fired from your job, uh, you cannot appeal because of the state of emergency. And, and that had been uh, kept uh, extended over and over, 140,000 people lost their jobs uh, in the past eight months. They are not allowed to apply for a public job again. If if uh, if if uh, those who are fired is a are a, a police officers, they cannot be even a private guard. Their passports are seized. Family pas passports of their family members are revoked. So they are not allowed to survive in Turkey, and they are not even allowed to go out of the country. And, and because they're not allowed to go out of the country, they choose routes that are dangerous and perilous for them. Those dingy boats that used to carry Syrian refugees are now filled with Turkish professors. Just a friend of ours just tried to cross um, the, the, the Marich River that divides the Turkey and Greece uh, border, um, drowned and, and, and died. Um, and, and Turkish authorities refused to uh, send uh, search and rescue teams because he was um, accused of um, uh, charges in connection to the military coup attempt. He was a just ordinary IT engineer. And, and there are a lot of people who died um, in this process. And uh, according to recent tally, uh, I've seen number 56, which is, I think, even not accurate. It's, it's much higher than that. Um, so whenever you turn back and look how, what kind of a country Turkey turned into, it's alarming. And I think there's a lesson to be learned for not only for its neighbors, but also advanced democracies, which, which seems at the moment uh, 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 under target uh, because of the, uh, the recent upsurge of the populist politics that's uh, raging all around the world. Um, the, a, a segment of the population feeling um, left behind and disadvantaged, and, and there are a lot of leaders who are tapping into the feelings and sentiments of these people and, and riding with the flow and, um, and, and getting their votes. Um, the rise of the far-right parties in Europe and how uh, leaders like Erdogan are, are whipping up national sentiments both at home but also helping those far-right leaders to get elected. Uh, as you can see in recent events, how Turkish President Erdogan just um, uh, uh, with his bellic bellicose and pugnacious rhetoric, uh, how he whipped up these sentiments in Europe too by, um, by, by arousing all these uh, Turkish people in Germany and the Netherlands and, and throwing all these Nazi slurs on them, which is absolutely unacceptable and, and on, only helps to trivialize the sufferings of millions of people under the Nazi re regimes. Again, as I said during, uh, in, the, in the first part of my presentation, I'm not talking about uh, countries, autocratic countries like Russia or Iran or China. I'm talking about a country that had a vibrant civil society, somewhat independent media, and, and a very uh, hostile judiciary now uh, turned into a country um, that we do not recognize anymore. And, and I think this is a story that needs to be told and retold um, everywhere. And, and, um, and, and that's the reason why uh, we are trying to highlight uh, these scenarios. Thank you. Thank you very much. Yeah, uh, it's an honor for me to speak here with you. And 
as as my friend, as my colleague described very well, I am uh, one of the persecuted journalists. I was the editor-in-chief of the largest newspaper in Turkey, Zaman, and I was the CEO of a, a very important media group, one of the biggest media groups. Under our roof, uh, we had a Turkish daily newspaper, Zaman, which had a circulation of one million per day, and an English daily newspaper. In Turkey, there are two English dailies. One was in our media group, and we had a news agency, one of the private news agencies in Turkey, and uh, a weekly news magazine. We had a TV channel, a radio station. So you can imagine, uh, you could imagine New York Times or Wall Street of America. I mean, what I, what, while I, while I was talking about Zaman newspaper. So uh, I am a journalist for 25 years, and. Uh, we were supporting, as a media group, a democratization in Turkey to, be, to make Turkey a real democracy. Human rights, rule of law, and Turkey's membership to European Union, such values that were uh, important uh, for our understanding. But uh, in that crackdown, now this media group is not existing. On March 4th of last year, there was a decision by a court which was controlled by Erdogan regime. They appointed trustees to the company, to the whole media group, and uh, overnight, uh, with a police raid to the, to the media, uh, in front of our readers who came to our support, and the staff, reporters and journalists, and their families. In our company, we had, uh, we were employing uh, almost 4,000 people. With the families, it means almost 20 to 30,000 people overall in, in Turkey. So uh, there was a uh, police raid by a by, uh, very, very brutal one with the tear gas and the water cannons, etc., in midnight. And uh, we were very weak to defend our newspaper. So we were protesting to show our democratic right. But it is impossible to defend in such an, a brutal uh, raid and against such a brutal uh, government decision. So uh, in, in midnight, uh, I, I was uh, kicked out of the newspaper headquarters as the top editor by the policeman. And then uh, the second day, uh, the trustees who were appointed by the government fired me. And they uh, prevented me even to enter into the newspaper. And they uh, hired another uh, journalist uh, to run the newspaper. And they changed the whole editorial policy. It was a critical newspaper in respect to government, but it turned into a mouthpiece of government overnight. And uh, I was under pressure, so it was very difficult for me to survive even in, in Turkey. Uh, my phone conversations were tapped. Wherever I go, I was 
followed by some people, uh, secret police, maybe intelligence. I was getting lots of threats uh, by the uh, supporters, by the fanatic supporters of uh, the ruling party, Erdogan's party. So I, I decided to leave the country. And uh, 10 days after takeover, I, I left the country in a midnight and I bought my ticket just two hours before flight time in order not to alert uh, authorities, uh, not to be caught in, in the airport. I was not sure if my passport is still valid because a lot of people's passports were revoked uh, during that time. So I, I said, I will try my chance. And it was, as I said, uh, midnight in, this, in Istanbul airport, main airport. I went uh, to the police officer and I, uh, I showed my passport. So at that time, it was possible that they would arrest me. Uh, and they would say to me that your passport is revoked. But luckily, there was no restriction. And I uh, fly to uh, Europe first and then to uh, America. And uh, of course, my family left back. And it took me uh, for maybe eight months to bring together my, my family, my uh, son and daughter and wife. Now, luckily, I am uh, in a secure uh, position. I'm, uh, I am in exile now. I don't have a job yet. I lost all my career. I lost my newspaper, everything. And uh, But I feel myself fortunate because uh, lots of my friends, 52 journalists from my newspaper, from my media group, now in jail. And there are uh, female reporters who are uh, at the age of 20, 25. And there are columnists and very prominent intellectuals who are our columnists are also in jail. And they are, some of them are over there, 70 years of age. And uh, we are in a very difficult situation. Can you imagine that you try to survive this trauma? And on the other hand, you try to help them. And it, there is not much thing I can do for them other than speaking up and to raise the awareness that Turkey is getting drifting away from democracy in a very rapid manner. And in international society, I mean, the media associations or human rights groups, whatever, they could raise their voice to help, uh, to free our friends. And uh, this is just the, uh, this is not just related to our media, to our newspaper. There has been over 150 media institutions, TV channels, radio stations, news websites were shut down after especially the coup d'etat attempt in uh, July last year. And the overall number of journalists in jail, uh, almost 200 now. And the number is increasing. And Turkey is the leader in terms of jailing journalists now. It's worse than China and Iran, unfortunately. And 
this is just media part of the crackdown on democracy. During that time, in last maybe eight months, 7,000 7, academicians lost their jobs. 7,000. Can you imagine? Some of them also in jail. Not only lost their jobs, but some of them are in jail. Among them, there are deans of faculties, there are rectors, the professors, and they have nothing uh, to do with anything uh, against government or something. But the accusation against our newspaper and against me, and there's an arrest warrant against me, and they accuse me and my media as a terrorist as, or supporting uh, terror. This is the label put on anyone who is criticizing uh, the ruling parties or Erdogan, Erdogan's government uh, views. So this is uh, where we come here from, from very important days that Turkey was seen as a model of Muslim democracy. Just five years ago, it was on the headlines from Japan to France that Turkey was having and undergoing an important uh, transformation towards being a secular Muslim democracy. And now look at what I am talking about. You know, this is very sad. And I was very important and a fanatic supporter of that transformation which, which was happening. And I was very close to Erdogan personally. I was flying uh, with him on his uh, tours to international capitals. And uh, when he was in difficult position vis-a-vis -vis establishment, the military, judiciary, there was, for instance, in 2008, uh, there was an attempt uh, to close down the ruling party, the governing Erdogan's party. And in 2007, there was a military memorandum to get rid of uh, the government. And in all those times, we, I personally, and our media group was the strongest supporter of Erdogan in the, in the name of democracy. And Erdogan promised indeed democracy for, for Turkish people when he founded his party in 2002. And from, from then, from that point, uh, we are uh, now described by many international observers as a dictatorship now. And there is a one-man rule. And unfortunately, there is a referendum next month, the 16th of April, the ruling party proposing to change the political system of Turkey from parliamentary democracy into a presidential system, which means, I mean, Erdogan will have the final say on everything. And he will have more control over judiciary. And he will have, I mean, absolute power on his party, absolute power on parliament. And it will be almost impossible to call uh, Turkey a democracy. And which country we are talking about? This is not Syria. This is not Iraq. This is not Libya. This is not Saudi Arabia. This is NATO member an ally of United States for 60 years, and it's a founding member of European Council. 
and it has a history of 200 years of modernization, westernization, and it has a history of 60 years democratization since 1950s. It is a very sad story that now Turkey, day by day, turning into a kind of Middle Eastern country. In the, in the past, uh, the person that was very famous, uh, that was absurd in a, for a democracy, was the chief of staff. So he was very popular in, 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 in Turkey. Many people would know the chief of staff by his name. Now, who is known in Turkey other than Erdogan? The, now the head of the intelligence is very prominent and very famous in, in Turkey, which is an important illustration that Turkey turned already into a kind of muhaberat or intelligence state, like Middle Eastern countries. And this is, this is terrifying for me. And this should be also a point of concern for, for, for our friends, because it, it means we are losing Turkey. And indeed, we lost Turkey. Why that happened? This is an important question. I guess we should think about it. How a democracy could be hijacked by a populist leader? This is an important question. And what, is, what could be done after today? after that point? I mean, these kind of questions, and is, is it possible to grow democracy in a Muslim society? This is also an important question now. So there are a lot of questions that uh, we could uh, elaborate about and think about, uh, maybe uh, with your questions. Uh, we can continue talking about. Thank you. Thank you very much. Questions? <clears throat> Andy will bring the mic your way, I think. Yeah. I appreciate both of your presentations. I teach an international communication class. And last fall, we used the attempted coup as our first case study because it had just happened. Um, I guess the, one of the questions that comes up, cartoonists, editorial cartoonists, are of course liminal journalists, but they're experiencing the same difficulties in Turkey. And I know the, uh, the editorial cartoonists in the United States have been for several years expressing concern about the cartoonists who have gone to jail and so forth. Um, how does the whole role, the, the, the entire world of journalism come to play here? Are there journalists who are supporting Erdogan? And are they true journalists? Uh, the cartoonists are, are, you know, and I guess part of what I'm, this is very strangely, but cartoonists in the United States are beginning to experience the same thing that cartoonists in Turkey first experienced, not going to jail, because we can't do that yet. But newspapers are dropping them because they're opposing our current president, whose name should remain silent. Um, you know, how did this come about in Turkey? You mentioned 10 years ago 
you know, can you say some more about the process? First of all, it did not happen overnight. It developed in a gradual fashion. So how it happened, and there are two uh, sides of the story. I mean, when you have a populist government, he needs media, he or she, whoever. The media is very critical to relate your message to the people, to get their support, etc. Because in a, uh, what is the difference between a populist notion of democracy and real democracy? And the difference is that in a populist uh, democracy, you, your focus, your sole focus is the ballot box. So you say that I'm getting the support of people, that's it. So I can do everything. I can shut down newspaper, I can fire an academician, I can fire a judge, whatever. What is your power? This is the people, people's support. So th that makes a democracy populist, other than a real democracy. In real democracy, yes, you have an election, but you have also independence of judiciary. You have freedom of media. You have strong control by Congress, by Parliament. So without those elements, you have elections, but in Libya there was elections too. And even in Germany, during Hitler time, there was elections. So it's not illustration of real democracy. It is just one important step for, for democracy. And uh, since media was critical, I mean, you should prevent critique coming from media. So you need crash opposition media. This is one dimension. And the sec second dimension, you should create your own media. And that process happened maybe in 10 years' time. So with very critical uh, tactics that I could describe, but it would take some hours. But uh, I mean, mainly by three tactics, uh, the ruling party, Erdogan's party, increased his control over media. One was uh, there was a state fund which was used for uh, bankrupt companies who had financial difficulties. So, uh, for instance, there is a media group which is part of a bigger uh, economic uh, cong I mean, holding, let's say, but it is in a difficult uh, position financially. And then this fund take control of that uh, holding and sells the newspaper or television under that holding to a business person who is associated with the party. And then you change the editorial policy overnight. This is one tactic. And the other is using uh, judiciary to take control or to crash critical newspaper, which was the case in, our, in ours. And this, is, this, is, this was very uh, successful. And the third tactic was, it, I mean, it was genius. You know, every government is making airports, 
roads, hospitals, etc. And these are big contracts. And you give those contracts to important business people. And in our case, in Turkish case, what happened? For instance, you are giving construction of an airport to a businessman or businesswoman, and in return, you ask that businessman or that businesswoman to buy certain newspaper or certain television channel. But this person is not interested in running a TV channel or a newspaper. He's just a kind of, I mean, in-depth to getting that contract. And then the, the ruling party appointing an editor in his or her ideology and take the control of editorial policy. So these, these are three uh, steps to control the media. With those tactics, now Erdogan controlling 90% of Turkish media. And they, he created a media that is supportive of uh, his uh, perspective. And when, whenever he speaks, for instance, I mean, it doesn't, I mean, I mean it, it, it needed, it doesn't need to be an important speech. Every speech is live on 30 TV channels at the same time. <laughs> can you imagine? So can you imagine the strength or the power of propaganda? And you to control 90% of media. And I mean, it, it's almost impossible for, for ordinary people to get the other uh, perspectives or to hear the views of the opposition. So this is, this is how it had happened. Uh, so uh, to your question, yes, there are journalists, but these journalists are happy with their role in being mouthpiece of government. And they are living very luxurious lives. They have no problem. But the other journalists who have been critical lost their jobs, lost their institutions, and now in jail. So this is the situation. Well, um, the reason why these tactics didn't work um, in our case is, um, and why the Turkish right police stormed our newspaper uh, last year, is because um, we're not uh, differential to the uh, whims of the government. We did not ask what the government asked us, asked us to do, to write and shape our editorial policy in line with their wishes. You know, 20 years ago, um, Erdogan was jailed and, um, and he was suspended from politics for five years. Um, there was an unfortunate headline by a newspaper called Hurriyet, which, which was the, the best-selling newspaper back then, that he cannot be even a village administrator. Erdogan is so obsessed with that uh, headline that um, he called, I think, like nearly like 40 uh, meetings of village administrators to his palace. Um, you know, populist leaders, you know, whenever they're obsessed with someone, they never forgive and they never forget. They're so obsessed. They will, it, it, does, it could be an institution. It could be uh, an individual. And at this point, I feel bad for Rosie O'Donnell uh, because they, they don't let it go. Never, ever. And... Um, and that has been in the mind and the heart of Erdogan for 20 years, that, that he understands the role of media and how significant it is in shaping politics, 
in, um, in, in designing um, the political system and also uh, preserving or ousting governments. Because the government that, that he was part of when he was mayor of Istanbul was ousted after a series of um, uh, damaging uh, front page articles by um, secular and hostile media. So he understands the, 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 the power of the media. And by showing um, some, uh, brandishing some sticks and bestowing some uh, carrots, um, he is using this, um, the state power and resources to co-opt some media or shut them down if they don't, if, if they're not becoming uh, differential. And, and that's what happened in our, uh, in our case. Uh, we did not um, bow down to the pressure of the government, so we were shut down, and most of our colleagues were jailed. Those, uh, those of us who were lucky could flee the country. And those journalists who wanted to uh, accompany President Erdogan and his ministers in you know, trips abroad, or they wanted very um, good salaries, they continued working with them. Regarding cardinalists, yes, we have a very um, a good cardinalist called Musa Kart from Jumhuriyet, who is in jail at the moment. I think it's been like uh, 80 days by now. And, um, and we have, um, as far as I know, two designers, one of them an exceptional designer, and our colleagues, been long, a long-time colleague, Fevzi Yazici, who is in jail, who, who is an award-winning designer, and another is Ali Babur, Babur, who is in jail, I think, since September. So um, these people are not writing articles. These people are just designing newspaper. And the reason why they are there is because they worked for our newspaper. I think it was your driver, right, Tassin, uh, who is in jail? Yes. His driver, he's not even writing anything. He's in jail just because they thought that maybe, you know, he could confess, you know, what kind of conversation he had with some editors. Um, and, and there are, um, by one tally, up to uh, 200 people. But I think what's problematic here in the United States that I don't think the president or White House or authorities here could go and shut down newspapers and, and put journals in jail because uh, the, the judiciary is very strong and institutional mechanisms are, are, are working, at least uh, yet. Um, I think the problem here is that the new fashion of photocracy is how leaders um, in democratic countries can manipulate the media and discredit them by labeling them as this so-called dishonest uh, liberal media. So whenever you do that, you diminish the important role they, they, they carry for people. And, uh, and, and as time passes for years, and, and then there's a, a bombshell, you know, embarrassing revelation about the president or some, you know, secretary, no one will buy it. No one will say that this is true because they were already cast aside as a villain, as a fake news. So whenever CNN has um, a, a very important story, people won't buy it. People won't believe it because uh, there are tens of millions of people uh, who already, you know, trust the president, trust the people around him. And if the president says this is, you know, a biased fake media, so-called mainstream fake media, they will not buy it because they, they will believe that they are you know, uh, bowing to the pressure by the special interest groups, by the establishment, and that that's the you know, fake media doing just its job. And I think this is the biggest danger facing here as, as the, the authorities are trying to discredit the media. Uh, it's, it's, it's more dangerous. Uh, it's, it's not similar what, what we have gone through in Turkey. Social media, is that suppressed or is that all a counterforce? 
Well, um, we have um, verified uh, Twitter accounts, um, and both of our accounts were withheld in Turkey. And Twitter is becoming very complicit with, uh, with Turkey because Turkey's tightly controlled courts are uh, ruling that you know, we are inciting violence, uh, whereas the only thing that we have done is to report. And reporting these accounts to Twitter, and they shut it down in Turkey. So no one in Turkey can access to what we write. You know, we, we journalists, we cannot um, appear on Turkish TV channels. We cannot write to their newspapers. We had newspapers and radio stations and TV channels. All of them were shut down, were wanted for arrest. There's no way that we can reach out to the Turkish audience. And that was the only window, the only channel that we could speak to our readers. And that is being taken away from us too. But again, I, I think in authoritarian countries, the role of social media is so overrated that yes, in the digital age, in the, in, the, in the information era, you cannot hide any truth. They will be there. But unless they are picked up by mainstream media, especially TV networks, they don't shape the public opinion. 24-7, Turkish TV networks and, and all these you know, uh, newspapers are brainwashing the Turkish people. And there are millions of people, and most of them voting for Erdogan, do not follow um, alternative uh, critical websites. And they can't even survive. Uh, most of them are restricted access. One of our colleagues, John Dundar, who is in Germany, who established a, a website. In one day, it was just shut down. So, so no way, um, there's, there's no way that we can access the people in Turkey, because Turkish people on average, especially those who are not working, watch TV at least five hours a day. So unless you are on TV channel, there's no way you can shape the public opinion. And it doesn't matter if there's a very embarrassing you know, tape recording of Erdogan trying to hide $1 billion in a phone conversation with his son. Since the TV channels do not report about that, they do not shape the public opinion because they're only a very small fraction of the society going to the social media and, and Facebook and Twitter and making up their mind. But also because the society is so polarized and divided, there's no healthy flow of information across the board. So whenever, we don't have a, a problem of the lack of information. The problem is that the, the people don't buy, uh, people are being fed by their own channels. So if I write anything, and if even those who don't uh, like me or oppose me or oppose my mindset will not believe what I say because it's so polarized. And Twitter and Facebook is our primary source of this polarization. So even if they have access, uh, the polarization does its trick. And, and I think this is a, one of the uh, centerpiece of the populist leader's design to make sure that the society is polarized and they have a solidified a consolidated electorate that only buy, uh, only watch and read their TV channels and newspapers. You want to add to that? Just, just uh, two points. Once uh, uh, YouTube, Facebook, and Twitter were shut down by Erdogan government first. And second, uh, if they don't, if he doesn't ban altogether, he selectively uh, targets critical voices like my Twitter account. So people in Turkey cannot read my tweets because it is blocked by, by Twitter in cooperation with, with, with Erdogan government. And uh, the, the social media uh, is an important uh, voice, but not an alternative to mainstream media, as I agree with my friend 
that it is it's very difficult. And uh, you know, in social media, everyone is journalist. So uh, there is a danger of not being able to check the quality of or verify whether something is real or fake. So I mean, when you got got out of real media or mainstream media, you enter into uncharted territories, which is also, I mean, uh, supporting uh, populist uh, ideologies, in, in fact. Thank you. Um, I was wondering what your thoughts were about international media covering Turkey. Um, my sister was actually in um, Turkey, and all she tried to do, she was just sort of there to um, a lot of different reasons, actually. But um, one thing she tried to do was attend an Erdogan talk. It's about a year ago, and um, she was carrying a, a pad of paper and a pencil, and she got taken to the, the, the police station as a United States citizen. So um, that, to me, really, like, uh, you know, I just always remember that situation. And, of course, like a lot of international journalists have been hassled in the same way. And I'm sort of wondering if you feel that international journalism could do more to help cover Turkey or if they've also been silenced. I could say a few things, but I, I then move to uh, Mahir because he prepared a very important uh, story about the situation of foreign journalists in, in Turkey. Uh, I mean, uh, foreign media is very important and they had full solidarity when we were attacked. In that night, that was police raid to our uh, media facilities, international uh, news agencies, TV stations, even Chinese and Russian TV stations were live showing the uh, police raid to our uh, facilities. I guess if you enter uh, into YouTube, you will see how uh, brutal the operation was and very different uh, TV stations uh, broadcasted it on that night. Since I'm living with that trauma, sometimes I go back retrospectively and watch the videos. And it, yesterday, for instance, I was watching uh, uh, 16 minutes of coverage by Russian TV. It was amazing. So the international media, I mean, be it uh, Guardian, Le Monde, or New York Times, was a serious uh, medias, uh, gave very important uh, coverage of this uh, drift from democracy. And uh, of course, uh, more needed. But uh, I, I guess uh, the Western governments were a bit weak to understand deterioration of Turkish democracy. I mean, I mean, media was, uh, international media especially, was cautious and I mean, from, from four, four, four or five years, uh, the report started to say that Turkey is drifting at, from democracy, Turkey is going into a direction to the, towards Middle East, etc. Mm -hmm. There was those warnings. And uh, those warnings continues, but um, I, I, I'm, I'm sorry and very sad that the, both European governments and the American administration were not able to understand that yes, Erdogan was good until some point, but after a while he turned into someone else, 
and they continued to give their support. Until last year, for instance, there was, I mean, red carpet uh, ceremonies in European capitals or in White House uh, offered to Erdogan, although he was shutting down newspapers, TV channels, etc. And there was a meeting of G20 in Antalya, for instance. This is, I don't, I never forget that. And Obama was one of the uh, participants to that meeting. Just three days before that meeting, that summit, maybe 16 TV channels were shut down. And Obama came and said nothing about that. <laughs> and went to Antalya, participated to the meeting, and went off. So these things, uh, I mean, not helpful. I guess this is, I mean, what is the relationship, or what is the interest of America for Turkey to stay democratic? That question is not understood very well by Western politicians. Uh, we can talk about that, but I mean, you are losing a, a, a very critical country into uh, Middle Eastern authoritarian regimes. Now he's getting close relations with uh, Putin. And never forget that uh, Turkey is the only Muslim secular democratic country as a member of NATO. So it's very critical for continuation of those things, those values, for Turkish people and for its allies in the world. But this was unfortunately neglected. So for specifics of foreign journalists, my... <laughs> Well, um, thank you very much. Um, you know, I'm actually half Turkish, so I actually worked as a foreign journalist in Turkey too. And it's always been a ch very challenging uh, task. Our work permits, uh, actual residence permits, were uh, always delayed for three or five months. You know, I would have to make a scene in the police station to make sure to, to extend it. So it, it was a, a, a quite daunting task for us. And, um, and, and, and we have received a lot of threats, including death threats. And we always, you know, had, um, you know, that uh, belief that, you know, uh, I could leave home and, and not uh, return back. And, and one day it happened. I went to the newsroom and my editor-in-chief, who is actually in exile, went for us to, uh, what a farce, actually. And uh, he told me that, you know, um, there, there's an arrest warrant for me. And I, you know, uh, stayed in the newsroom, but, you know, the police went to our house, couldn't find me there. And, and we thought that, you know, the, the Turkish police would not come to the news, new, newsroom because that was such a, you know, a embarrassment for the government. At that time, uh, they were obsessed with their image. That was a very bad PR fi fiasco that, that would be back then, which is funny when I say this because two years later, they just stormed our newspaper and completely shut it down. And um, so whenever they came to the newsroom, um, I had to... Uh, escape from the back door, and and I went to a several location for three days, and then our decision was that you know would appeal the decision, and and issue, and so that the court could issue safe execution, and we couldn't because the pressure was so tremendous that the, the police kept coming to the news newspaper and calling uh, my editors, so we decided that we should go and uh, and surrender to police. So I met with my wife and went to the airport, and several hours before that, um, we uh, our strategy was that would break the story. So it, to marshal in international support, we, and, and we were successful, they let us go. And, and we left the country, I think, like exactly like three years ago, and, and we came here to the United States. Um, five days before that, I was called in the police for questioning. Um, and a, a month before that, you know, Turkish president um, 
pressed charges against me, seeking up to six years in prison. I was the first journalist to be deported from Turkey. And since then, 24 uh, of my colleagues were deported, uh, all of them foreign journalists. Um, just a couple of months ago, my friend Dian Nissenbaum from the Wall Street Journal were, were detained for three days and then uh, deported from, from the country. And um, at the moment, we have a, a German reporter that Erdogan keeps calling him a terrorist and a German spy in prison uh, because he covered the, the Kurdish uh, plight in the, in the southeastern country. There are a lot of foreign journalists who are reaching out to me and saying that, you know, um, should I go to this province? Is it safe for me or not? And there are a lot of journalists here in the United States who are telling me that, should I cover Turkey from Greece or Georgia or from, from somewhere else? And the New York Times has started to run anonymous bylines. This is a practice that they have been doing, doing in Syria to protect those local journalists who are reporting for the New York Times. They're like, let's say Syrian local journalist who is translating and reporting for the New York Times. So it's like a, a New York Times employee report from Damascus, for example. That's what they use for Turkey. It's like a New York Times employee from Bursa, you know, contribute to this report. And, um, and there are a lot of uh, uh, journalists who are being um, uh, taken away from Turkey to other countries. Another friend, Jaylan, who was working for the New York Times, uh, relocated to London just because she received a lot of death threats. Most journalists in the past three or five years um, were located either in Beirut or in Baghdad. They um, uh, relocated to Istanbul because that was kind of a safe harbor for them, and, and most of these journals were roving reporters, so they could travel all, all across the Middle East. Not anymore. They are now relocating to, to Cairo, which is seen as a, a safe place at the moment for foreign journalists. So, so as I said, I mean, it's very challenging, and foreign journalists are not uh, immune uh, to, to the government intimidation. At least they are not as unlucky as their Turkish colleagues, colleagues who are being put in prison. Uh, I don't think there's anyone in jail. There's only a German report, but he has a dual nationality, a Turkish citizenship too, which is un unfortunate, and, and, and he cannot renounce it because there's an ongoing investigation. But, but there are a lot of people who were arrested. I escaped because usually you are put in jail for several weeks and then uh, escorted out of the country. So to avoid that, so I had to go and uh, you know, escape the police for several days. Um, and, uh, and I acted uh, in, a, in a smart fashion, otherwise I would be in jail for several weeks or months. I'm not sure if, if even I would be even allowed to go out of the country. So um, there are a lot of places that are off limits for foreign journalists, especially if you go to the southeastern Turkey, this area predominantly populated by Kurdish people, if you are trying to cover war zones, I think this is the off limits. And if you are uh, reporting about the, the hacked emails of the Turkish minister who is a son-in-law of, of, of President Erdogan, I think this is off the, off the limits. There are a lot of journalists uh, who were uh, put in jail, including that German Turkish reporter, just because you know, they report about these hacked emails. So it's, um, it, it's quite a challenge. So thank you all for being here. This is uh, really enlightening, insightful. So I was in Turkey when the attempted coup happened, and I was up in Urdu on the coast of the Black Sea. I went up into a village and stayed for four days. And when I came down, there was a drastic shift. The flags had been put out, the, the nightly meetings of watching Erdogan on the TV in the plaza. And it was at that moment that I really wondered why would people feel so absolutely... Um, connected to him and continue to support this and prop it up. And as I watch the news, I continue to wonder, you know, why, why are the people 
the majority, you say, um, willing to continue to support this? Yeah, this is one million question. <laughs> I mean, uh, you know, I, I uh, try to describe the main characteristics of populist uh, regimes or populist leaderships. Uh, in that, uh, you have some uh, other things that I should add uh, to what I said earlier. This is uh, one very important thing is use of uh, ideology of nationalism. That's very tricky, very important. And you say that, uh, you know, Turkey had a glorious history. Turkey had 600 years of Ottoman Empire, which was influential in three continents. So when you underline that as a leader of a political party or a leader of country, it, I mean, says a lot to a lot of people. So this is, this is very important. And when you look at uh, this 90% controlled by uh, Erdogan's, uh, as I said, the, in the media, current Turkish media, you see a lot of referrals to Ottoman times. Even now there, are, there is a TV serial about uh, Sultan Abdul Hamid. I carry the same name. Uh, so there, there are some uh, parallels uh, established by the Ottoman Sultans and Erdogan. And some people, some humble people in Ordu, in your in the city that you mentioned, or in Konya, in Bursa, think that Turkey is moving into in, in a right direction. Indeed, Turkey is getting powerful, more powerful, and the Ottoman times are turning back. So this is uh, the mindset of many people who are still uh, supporting. This is the use of nationalism. And uh, Erdogan does it very smartly. Every day he attacks any uh, state. Somet sometimes it becomes Germany, sometimes it becomes America. So when he is harshly criticizing a, a superpower, it means that you are strong. Indeed, economy goes wrong in a very, I mean, very <coughs> badly. Tourism statistics are showing very bad results. Every aspects. Real things are very negative, but the emotions and the psychology and the rhetoric is the vice versa. And the second thing is very critical is use of religion. I mean, this is also very important. Yesterday I was uh, watching, a, uh, I was, uh, I mean, looking at some uh, YouTube videos from, from Turkey. I saw that Erdogan visited a mosque and recited Quran. And this is this has this turns to be regular at the times when the election times approaches. <laughs> Recently, for instance, he visited uh, he visited Mecca. You know, it's very important for for Muslims, and it was all in this uh, pro-government media. The pictures that he is in Kaaba, and he is uh, delivering his sermons, etc. So the use of religion is very important, and the. Third thing is uh, a very important element in uh, the populist uh, ideology is supporting the poor people 
with, uh, with subsidies. I mean, e even uh, by giving $100 to a family is very important sometimes if your, your income is uh, so limited. And there are, uh, I mean, according to some uh, studies, 15 mi million, 15 to 20 million people subsidized by one or another uh, method by giving some donations or in some coal, for instance, in the winter, or uh, pasta, whatever, I mean. So this, this is uh, also important. And of course, uh, maybe we could also add lack of free media. If you don't have free media, where people will learn that Turkey is not going into right direction, but it is in a very wrong direction. So people assume that they are in a glorious times now. But in reality, it is the opposite. And when you have problems in economy, in, in the currency, for instance, Turkish currency lost value maybe 40% in last two years. But I mean, the, we call it pool media. Uh, the government, pro-government media, describes and gives a reason for every bad thing happening in Turkey. They say that Turkey is getting strong, powerful, and our enemies in the world are envy of us, and they are creating problems for us. So this is this explains everything. So that that is how I could say how I could say to that one million question. <laughs> Well, um, I absolutely agree, and I think uh, just to put some theoretical framework uh, to that, I think it's a very important question that also should be asked here in the United States. Uh, you will have to ask. Uh, the, uh, the populist leaders seldom lose popularity uh, because uh, they are supported by a, a group of people who believe that they can do no wrong. And, and if you remember President Trump, Trump, candidate Trump, actually said that I would shoot somebody in the Fifth Avenue and I would not lose popularity, and we laughed, and he was right. Um, and the reason why actually he was elected because the, uh, the American media uh, didn't take him um, seriously, uh, take took him literally, but not seriously. But you know, voters took him um, seriously, but not literally. Um, and uh, the they um, um, build a mechanism that no matter what what goes wrong in the country benefit them. I and mean, as as you said. It's like if there's a bombing attack, it's the Turkey under attack. If there's if economy goes south, if it's sagging, it's like the interest lobby or the global dark evil circles that are targeting Turkey. So, and if you if there's anything good going on in the country, you take credit for it, you take responsibility for that. So, that mechanism is designed in a way that benefits them all the time. And, um, and, and there are a lot of um, the factors, and I think one of the most important one is the jobs. There's only like one, two percent in every society that really care about human rights, you know, freedoms, or environment. Most people really care about jobs. They, they only, uh, the only thing they think is if I can make the ends meet. And, and whenever you say, you know, jobs that reverberate uh, among millions of people who, who, who feel left behind. And, uh, and in Turkey, when you consider uh, against what background uh, President Erdogan came to power, 
It was 10 years of economic turmoil and, and, and political turbulence. And he came to power, and there are two things that are underpinning his government. One of them is political uh, stability, and another is economic stability. And these processes are actually reinforcing each other. So it's important that there are 17 million people who are through that or this way, as you said, are subsidized by the government. And there are lots of millions of people who have jobs, no, and, and if inflation goes up, it doesn't really matter. Because as long as you have a job, if prices are soaring, it, should, it shouldn't be a problem. That's what happens in populist economy. You know, Maya Angelou once said that people will forget what you did or said, but they will never forget how you made them feel. And I think populist leaders like Putin, Erdogan, and Trump really make their electorate feel empowered and great and dignified by uh, reciting how the, this country is great, but it's being taken away from us, and, and how Ottoman Empire was so glorified while you know, citing uh, these times. And, and, and these people buy it because they, they really um, recall those periods when they were great, and they think that the, this leader, uh, I'm talking about Erdogan, who came to power as, as the champion of the underdog and lifted millions of people out of poverty, it's really very difficult to uh, forsake him and abandon him because they believe that he has done right in the past and he may do right in, in, in the future. And whatever is wrong with Turkey, President Erdogan and people around him are presenting to the society that these are uh, temporary nuisances and you know they will go away and it's not up to us, it's just because we are rising and there are a lot of powers in the world, uh, both abroad and at home, are targeting us and, and trying to uh, put hurdles and obstacles in our path. And they are, we should not forget that they are great communicators and, and they are deliberately engaging in colorful fights to remain under the national spotlight. And you know, I'm a journalist, I know how it works. Uh, as a journalistic instinct, it's whenever you see a flamboyant, colorful, um, you know, personality there, and if there's a fight, that, that would be a very good thing to cover. And they exactly know that. And, and they are, you know, we are falling prey on that because we have to make money, basically. Um, I would add two, two points on, on uh, this question. One, one is the uh, psychology of victimhood. Uh, Erdogan is using very successfully, and if there is no opportunity, he creates opportunity. For instance, one last opportunity was created with the quarrel with Netherlands. You know, I mean, Netherlands said, don't come here for political propaganda, please. But despite that, one of our ministers was in Germany, and he, I mean, without any permission and without any welcome, he she tried to enter into the country, and she was, I mean, dismissed. She was prevented from entering. Which is also the... a violation of Turkish law, too. Yeah. and. Turkish law also prohibits political propaganda outside country. But it became a big story for pro-government media that uh, they are still, and, and the lady, the, the, the minister, uh, was wearing a headscarf, so which added another uh, vulnerability and the victimhood. And uh, the Erdogan was directly uh, managing the crisis and operations. And minister, uh, the, the minister said that I will not turn back if Erdogan said so. She said she was ready to die. So these are statements 
from, from her, and it has been huge uh, headlines in, in, in Turkish media. So this victimhood is very important, and as, as Mahir described, the, uh, you know, in, in Erdogan's case, it was not tragic from the beginning onward. So there was 10, almost 10 years of success story, an economic growth, lots of jobs, lots of democratic reforms, a lot of success stories, building hospitals, modernizing infrastructure, etc. So after that, there has been a change, as I tried to describe. So many people still uh, giving credit for, for, for him because of the past, per, past successful performance. And some people are uh, getting rid of that idea, but it takes time. So I guess these, these points are important. Um, I want to thank everyone for coming and for our guests for a very stimulating and more than thought-provoking discussion. And we will continue this, I hope, this evening. And hope to see many of you, if not all of you, this evening at 7 in Room G of this building. Thank you. Thank you.